is the Lord. These days we are subject to so many uh, earworms, is that what they call them? An earworm. Uh, you know, when certain um, marketing uh, people discover certain, you know, tunes and songs that have been played and used and, you know, put them on a commercial and see that first thing in the morning and then you can't get it, you know, can't get it out of your mind the rest of the day. Uh, these are the good type of earworms that you ought to have. You ought to, you know, wake up in the morning and uh, dream about um, melodies like, like that one, I think, and uh, let it lead you throughout the day. Uh, you know, that's one of the things I mentioned this morning. I'm so thankful for our praise team and for those who sing on it and lead us of, of a Sunday because uh, many times during the week I will find my, that I've, I've dreamed that, uh, and in, this, in my dream that that melody, that song, that thing that we, the song that we had sang last Sunday was right there in my dream. Now, it didn't necessarily fit in with anything, but it was there. It's like soundtrack in the back. And, um, uh, or, you know, during the course of the day or when I'm going through a hard time. Uh, now, I will have to say this. I'm not the type of person that, you know, as soon as I leave here and I get my car, I turn on the radio to something that thumps. I'm not that type of person. You know, it goes out and something... You immediately you got to turn on something that thumps, and then it kind of drives out anything that you had in there before. So I'm not that type of person. So what I hear on Sunday maybe tends to stick with me a little bit more, um, uh, you know. But it, it, would, it would stick with any of us, I think, if you'd review it uh, during the week. And um, I feel like at one time we were putting our playlist up. On Spotify, perhaps, uh, you know, the songs that we sing on Sunday. That playlist. Uh, somewhere's on our Facebook feed or something like that. And if you wanted to listen to those songs uh, during the week, you could. So, uh, you know, I'll give you some advice. Uh, that is a good thing to do to help get your mind stabilized and centered. And, uh, and for tonight, uh, so, so let me just suggest this. Let me just say this. Uh, let's say uh, you have an electronic device. Now, maybe you're either doing your Bible on your electronic device, or you're taking notes, uh, or whatever. Uh, but if so, then open your browser and go to BibleGateway.com. Just bring up BibleGateway.com. Now, if you don't have this, if you're not able to do this, don't worry about that because, I don't know, next Sunday night or sometime soon when we get the uh, bugs worked out, I'm going to figure out a way to bring in my laptop and, you know, I may have to set at the back but at least get my laptop up on the screen because there are a couple of websites I, I want to show you in terms of uh, your English Bible and English Bible exegesis and, and getting the most out of the Word of God and how to use certain tools that are out there. We might as well talk about electronic tools as, as much as any. But uh, if you bring up BibleGateway.com and, you know, if you, if you subscribe to them, uh, where you would log in and you, I forget, it's, I don't know, a certain amount of money a month, then you can get rid of the ads and, uh, you know, that annoying box at the very bottom that you can hit the X and make it go away. Um, and then it will just, uh, you know, allow you to do your Bible searches and so forth. So bring up BibleGateway.com. Make sure under the uh, uh, um, bar there at the right, the option there at the right for the Bible version I'm going to recommend that you pick up AKJV, which is the authorized King James Version that's actually the British edition, the, um, the one that has the uh, 
you know, royal letters patent, the, the crown copyright or whatever. I mean, it does also have what is listed as King James Version. That's fine, too. Uh, yeah, I think it's American, uh, probably American Bible Society edition of it. I just always like to go back to the AKJV. The main difference is simply in the way some, uh, sometimes it'll print the verse on the screen uh, so that in the AKJV, um, poetry is actually in um, uh, kind of in verse uh, uh, poetic uh, format. Um, but other, otherwise, it's, uh, you know, it's the same wording. It's very, very, very much the same. Uh, but I'm just going to recommend that you, you set that option uh, to get ready to, uh, to pull some stuff on that. So we had the uh, opportunity, and we're, we are going to get into Psalm 119 tonight, but leading, leading into that this evening, uh, since I just got back from our, our um, discipleship conference for the Living Faith Fellowship, uh, in the Atlanta area at Oakland Heights Baptist Church uh, in a, a suburb of Atlanta. Um, uh, ev- everything is a suburb of Atlanta in Georgia, I think. And, uh, you know, they have whatever 16 million people in Atlanta, be it, but that is, you know, and the, and the highways are horrible. Uh, and I got there, I mean, I, I flew in, got in late, because I preached for Brett Bartlett in uh, Michigan, and so flew out of Detroit, I got in late, and so I'm driving midnight out of the airport, and people are still going 80 miles an hour in a 55, everybody else, 80 in a 55, and uh, it wasn't as crowded as it would be during the daytime, but it was still crowded, it's crazy, crazy traffic, um, uh, so I was kind of glad I was driving in an off hour, uh, going through there and, you know, it just occurred to me, well, there's 16 million people. They're really spread out, but boy, when you come downtown, it is a, it is a mess and mash up. And, uh, so we went to the conference there and Monday we had the pastor's lunch with other pastors that were there and, uh, I think I had read there were 28, 28 or 30 different churches represented at the conference, and uh, sessions were really good. Everything was going great. Tuesday, uh, we have our board meeting, such as it is, for Living Faith Fellowship. Uh, since I uh, am president of the board, I, I feel like I more or less have to, you know, go to those. And uh, so we were going to have that, and Jeff Bartell had emailed me, I don't know, two days before and said, you know... Um, now, now, you understand Pastor Bartell had been a missionary in Albania for over 10 years, planted churches that are still going today, going and growing today, and so that would have been right after communism fell, and uh, Albania had been, I think, the only country on earth that had declared themselves totally atheistic, so they did all they could to stomp out any type of religion. And uh, uh, Jeff had gone over there, uh, uh, you know, after it initially opened up and ended up planting a church and marrying an Albanian. And so then he came back and then, and then he was pastoring First, uh, First Baptist Church there in New Philadelphia, Ohio. And uh, so he had emailed me and said, look, you know, we have this couple from Albania and they've been working on a new uh, translation of the Bible into Albanian. So the Bible they had in Albanian, the old Bible had been translated from the Italian Diodate. 
So the Diodate version was like the Reformation version of Italian. And for Albanian, they simply translated straight from Italian into Albanian. That created some problems of, of its own, particularly the, the names, Bible names, because they just took the, uh, the Italian name and made it Albanian. And so it doesn't quite mesh, but, uh, the, you know, a little bit of issues like that. Then someone had done a translation in 1994, kind of uh, quick and dirty. And so, yeah, maybe it had some issues too. So they were... They want to do a new translation, Albanian, and Jeff said, you know, we've, uh, you know, a lot of the guys on the board are, are supporting that. Could we just combine it? We'll just have our meeting while we do I said, man, that's great. Let's do that. I don't know if any, any big issues we got to discuss. So we went to uh, Pastor Bartel's father-in-law's house uh, for lunch on Tuesday, and that is where this, uh, this couple, Ariel and his wife from Albania, were there to show us what they were doing and kind of give a report. So Ariel is a computer programmer, so he'd written this computer program, and there are 789,000 words in a King James Bible. So what they decided to do is, because neither of them know Greek or Hebrew, although they're fluent in some other languages, European languages, they thought, well, let's just translate from the King James. That's, you know, it's it's got to be as good as translating from the Italian. So let's just translate from the King James. So he wrote this program, 789,000 words in a, in a King James Bible. There are 12,530 separate ones specifically. 12,530. So he programs in all 12,530 words. And he sets up this this program. And you can call up any word and it'll take you to every verse that that word is used in. So then he said, well, let's start doing definitions. Well, we don't, we don't have to use a dictionary uh, or the one in the back of Strong's Concordance or whatever. Let's, let's just let the usage determine meaning, which, which it does. Usage always determines meaning. Dictionaries do not determine meaning. Dictionaries reflect popular usage, which is why every year they come out, you know, with Webster's 20th edition collegiate English dictionary. And every year, uh, uh, Merriam-Webster and, and uh, um, I don't know, what, what are some of the other dictionary people? They have these contests. Each year they come out with, hey, here are the new words in the English language. And Webster will say, yeah, you know, we added 1,500 new words. Why? Because you started using them. And, and you know, they're words that we hadn't been using before. And uh, maybe they're things that we just coined or things that come up because of uh, all the things we're doing today or whatever, but okay, we added all these new words. When I was in school, this is, you know, back when Fred Flintstone uh, graduated, um, my teachers told me, you cannot use ain't, do not use, when you're writing a paper, don't use the contraction ain't because it's not in the dictionary. Well, guess what? I used it anyway, so now it's in the dictionary. 
And uh, so, so dictionaries reflect popular usage. They, they don't determine the, the definition, really. They look at how people are using words. Usage always determines meaning. Now, if the Bible is actually the Word of God, if it is one mind, the Holy Spirit, even though there were 40 different human authors, then it is self-defining because usage determines meaning. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but let me just point this out to you in terms of English Bible exegesis. If you're reading a verse and there's a word in that verse that you do not know the meaning of, well, just keep reading because either in that verse or the verse before it or after it, there will be a synonym used so it tells you what that word means. I mean, I mean I, I, they say the Bible, you know, King James Bible is hard to read and complicated bug, whatever. No, it's, uh, it's pretty easy peasy because even the words that are hard for us, if we just read in the context, usually right there is a synonym right there in the context. So those are some of the things I want to show you as we get, get into some of that stuff. So, so the, okay, so they've got all the words now they are, they're starting to go through all 12,530 words and put definitions. Definitions based on biblical usage so that they will know how to translate that into Albanian. And the latest iteration, he said, you know, we've discovered we've got to do word trees uh, to really make sure that we're um, uh, translating correctly um, word for word as we go through. And it was just, it was this amazing setup. And they discovered so many, so many things. And things that we take for granted or we overlook or we don't pay attention or it doesn't matter to us. And yet they're so important. So for example, one of the, they take these 12,530 words, they divide them into 30 categories. One category is animals in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever considered even uh, birds or plants. So the mandrake is talked about in the Bible. Mandrake is, a, is an herb, and it has a very distinct root that kind of looks like a human being. And yet, in the Albanian Bible, they used a word that sounded like mandrakes, but it's actually for something poisonous. Now, that's kind of a problem because in the Song of Solomon, you've got, you know, you, you, you've, you've got the woman giving her groom, her bridegroom, mandrakes. So, so in the Albanian, she's going to poison him. So they, they obviously need to update that, that translation. Uh, uh, other things, like if you were to put, uh, so, you know, um, uh, BibleGateway.com, um, Ossifrage, uh, how do you spell that? Let's see. Yes, O-S-S-I-F-R-A-G-E. There are two references for the Ossifrage. And the Leviticus 11.13, you know, birds you can eat, but this is an unclean bird, don't eat this one. 
It, sa- it says, Leviticus eleven thirteen. All all these are they which ye shall have in abomination among the fowls. So not just unclean. This is an abomination. And then it begins to list eagle, ossifrage, and osprey. Deuteronomy fourteen twelve. It's only mentioned twice. These are they of which ye shall not eat the eagle, the ossifrage, and the osprey. They're all like vultures. They're all, uh, um, they eat other dead animals, but particularly the ossifrage. When you start looking at this, and you know, we know uh, if you've taken discipleship too and you know something about types in the Bible, you know that the fowls, the birds, are a type, a biblical picture of demons and of spirit beings. So the fowls of the air are a Bible type or picture of demons. And so they got to looking at this and that word ossifrage from the Latin, it actually means bone crusher. So this is the bird that would pick up its prey, take it up in the air, drop it so that it could Break, just see it splatter, break the bones apart, and, and suck out the marrow from the bones. Well, that, that's kind of a cruel way to eat your dinner. I mean, that's a little, even a little bit worse than just roadkill and picking up what died of, of natural causes or something like that. So that was, that's the ossifrage. And, and, you, and you, you can figure out these things. With a King James Bible, now all the other, you know, translations today, they want to say, well, the ostrich, uh, you know, what is that? You know, maybe that's, maybe that's an ostrich. You know, I don't even know how they, I don't even know how modern translations translate it. But when you take this particular bird from that particular word, which actually comes from a Latin word, it, it, it's two words put together, it means these things, and it is a picture for you, and God says, no. Not going to eat that one. And and then you put that together with the story of Jesus with the demoniac up in the tombs. And Jesus casts out the legion of devils. And where did they go? They went into the swine to push them off the cliff. And drive them. Actually, in that case, drove them into the sea. But, but that's what demons do. And so God gives us certain things in the natural realm and the natural world to picture for us the um, unending cruelty of the spiritual forces that are out against us. So, so they put together this program. And I told him, I said, look, you know, you need to set aside the fact that you're doing a tra- you know, trying to make a Albanian translation for a second. Which, by the way, this software would be good if Andrew Ong wants to make a Vietnamese translation or somebody else goes someplace else wants to, I mean, it'd be good for any translation. But I said, set aside that fact. If you want to monetize being able to make, doing translating work, you ought to take this program, make it commercially available, either as a standalone thing somebody could buy or like BibleGatewayWhatGot.com, put it on the web and either you sell uh, ads uh, for uh, the try our best-selling cleansers now. That's what I, is up coming up on my Bible day. Now, usually what happens when I use, because I haven't paid 
I haven't paid the subscription fee. So the ads are always coming up when I'm using BibleGateway.com. And usually what it, you know, they're really sneaky about this because they eat your cookies. Right? So these, these websites eat your cookies and they'll go and they'll find out if I have searched on Amazon for SSD drives because I need to get a new SSD drive or whatever. Well, all of a sudden that's what pops up that they're trying to sell me. And uh, so they're really smart about that. Uh, but I told them, you know, you ought to monetize this and either put it, you know, if you put it on the web like this, either make it a subscription fee or, uh, you know, people have to wade through advertisements uh, in order to use it. And uh, because this particular thing they're doing would be so good for that idea of English Bible exegesis. Now, let me just show you one or two other things I thought were really amazing. And again, um, I'll probably hearken back to this maybe when we have our, when we have our all-church retreat. Uh, we're able to, you know, since Sam was there and I was there and Dan Renault was there, and we're kind of the big three in terms of all-church retreat out at uh, UCM in the summer, then we kind of put our heads together and said, okay, what speakers we want to have and what do we want to do? And whatever reason it was suggested, well, look, this year... Uh, uh, you know, why don't, uh, why don't, why don't, why don't you and Sam and Dan take the evening sessions? Let's don't have a, now we are going to have some special morning speakers, but let's don't have a special evening speaker. Let's the, just the three of you take the evening sessions. And I said, well, if we did that, I want to talk about English Bible exegesis. I want one session. I want one evening session at camp for English Bible exegesis. They said, oh, good, we'll just make it a Bible camp then, <laughs> an actual Bible camp. And uh, so I'm looking forward to doing that. But let's say you brought up BibleGateway.com and uh, type in the word malefactor. Malefactor, it's used three times in Luke and then once in John. And all three times in the Gospel of Luke, it's talking about the two thieves uh, on either side of Jesus, or in one of those references, the thief who is asking him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, and it calls those persons who are being crucified malefactors. Now, uh, with other uh, tools that I want to show you, um, how, yeah, very easy and free and how to use on the web, <clears throat> whenever I can get, you know, maybe in a future week I get my computer hooked up, uh, you would be able to research those verses and it'll show you the Greek word and the Strong's number for the Greek word. And it would tell you every other place the word is used and how it's translated. And you would see that normally that Greek word, which is the same Greek word throughout, is translated evildoer. Evildoer, evildoer, evildoer. Well, in these particular instances, why didn't the James gang just translate it evildoer? I mean, what's up with this? And then you read John 18.30. And this is when the Jewish rulers have taken Jesus and they've tried Jesus, uh, mock trial, kangaroo court, injustice in the first degree. 
and condemned Jesus and brought him to Pilate. And Pilate says, well, what have I, you know, what is this to me? What have I got to do with this? This is one of your all's religious things. You go take and do with him what you want. But of course, I mean, you can't do anything you want because you can't put someone to death. We don't, we Romans don't let you go that far with it. But otherwise, you know, you just take him and do what you want with him. And, and so in John 18, verse 30, the religious rulers who have brought Jesus answered and said unto him, if he were not a malefactor, malefactor is from the Latin. It is a Latin word. Male is uh, evil. Factor, like like uh, someone who is uh, uh, who's actually doing things. So it, it does mean the same thing, evildoer, but it's the Latin word because when they brought Jesus to Pilate, what they're saying to Pilate is, you know, he's not just an evildoer. He's a malefactor. He has broken your law. He has broken Roman law. And you are here to enforce Roman law. We wouldn't have brought him to you if he was not a malefactor. <coughs> so that's kind of a, you know, that's interesting. I saw only, only four times that the James gang uses the word malefactor, and they use it for a word that is the same Greek word in every other place, but they translate it this way because they understand the inflection of what's happening. Now, that's a lot like in Acts chapter 12, uh, verse 4, when it says that Herod is waiting and he's not going to kill Peter. He's got Peter in prison. He's not going to bring him out and kill him like he did James until after Easter. It says in the King James, after Easter. And every other translation and every other translator lights their hair on fire. Because they say, no, the, the Greek word is Pascha, that's Passover. Obviously, that's a mistaken translation. And they all say that. They all say that, and nobody looks at the context. Once again, all you have to do is like read the verse before and the verse after, and you find out that Herod, who was half Jew, but he was a Roman appointee, he was a they created regime change and made him king. So he was king by the will of the Romans. The days of unleavened bread were already, already passed. Passover was already passed. No, Herod kept Easter. And when a Jew wanted to refer to Easter, they, didn't, they wouldn't use a pagan god's name, Ashtar, well, they called it Pascha. It's, you know, so only the King James gets it right. Even the New King James, even all these other ones, they, none of them get it right. Only the King James get. They knew, they, all you got to do is read the context. They understood what was happening. And it's like, yes, we got to translate this Easter. Herod is a good Roman. He's not waiting till after Passover. We just told you Passover's already done, but he's going to wait till after Easter. And then he's going to take care of Peter. 
So there are all sorts of places uh, like that. One more thing, and then uh, then then we're going to get into Psalm one nineteen. One more thing: uh, if you were to uh, plug in the word uh, "worker," uh, so we plug in the word "worker." It's tw- twenty-eight, twenty-eight uh, references for the word "worker." Uh, let me start with uh, the second one, Second Kings twenty three twenty four. Workers with familiar spirits. First Chronicles twenty two. Uh, workers of okay, so that that's a fine one. Job thirty one three. Workers of iniquity. The next one, workers of iniquity. The next one, workers of iniquity. Psalm 5, workers of iniquity. Psalm 6, workers of iniquity. Psalm 14, workers of iniquity. Psalm 28, workers of iniquity. Psalm 36, workers of iniquity. Psalm 37, workers of iniquity. Psalm 53, workers of iniquity. Psalm 59, workers of iniquity. Psalm 64, workers of iniquity. Psalm 92, workers of iniquity. Psalm 90, again in 92, verse 9, workers of iniquity. Psalm 94, workers of iniquity. Psalm 94, 16, workers of iniquity. Psalm 125, workers of iniquity. Psalm 141, okay, you get the idea. Like 80 or 90% of these references, when you plug in the word workers, it is not a good context. Now, plug in the word laborer, uh, um, spell it the British way, L-A-B-O-U-R-E-R, 10 references. Now, in our English mind, we say, well, they're synonyms. A worker is a laborer, right? We use those synonymously. There's no difference between a laborer and a worker. Well, there's quite a negative context for laborers, which is why Matthew 9, quite a, quite a negative context for workers, which is why Matthew 9, the laborers are few. Send forth laborers, not workers. Workers do iniquity. Laborers bring in the harvest. Matthew 20, laborers into his vineyard. Luke 10, laborers are few. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, we are laborers together with God. 1 Timothy 5, the laborer is worthy of his reward. James 5, the, the hire of the laborers. So you've got... So you got workers, and it's not synonymous with laborers. Now, these are all the things you can find if you actually believe that the Bible you have contains the, the real words of God uh, that have a reason for why they are in there and how you can pick them up. You know, for most of my life, I've been fascinated with um, the organic whole of the Bible, you know, kind of the master plan and the dispensational order of the 66 books as a whole, and then to survey each book and divide it into its divisions. And so one year in LFBI, one of the courses we did was I did the entire Bible, entire Bible survey in 16 weeks, and, and to know the themes and to see all of them tied together into the textual tale of truth in the Bible. 
But recently, uh, you know, I've seen the necessity to become more and more fascinated with exegesis. So exegesis is the interpretation that results from a close reading of the words, a close reading of the words of the text, verse by verse, word for word, and then you finally pull it all together with cross-references from other places. And uh, I will say this, you know, we teach you in Discipleship 2, so most of Discipleship 2, many of the weeks of Discipleship 2, which is an eight-month class that we do in a group compared to Discipleship 1, which is 16 lessons one-on-one. But Discipleship 2, many of those weeks are given over to a study of the rules of Bible study. The rules of Bible study, meaning how you can interpret the Bible for yourself. And I will say this, all the other rules of Bible study don't even come into play until you're doing English Bible exegesis. Because that English Bible exegesis ensures that you get the words in the right place and the right interpretation out of those words for all three simultaneous applications. Do not believe the people who tell you that a text never means what a text never meant. And there are people who teach on how to study or interpret the Bible who say that. That's totally wrong. Because you know what? Since the text is not just a human book, but God's book, and every word is God's word, it's just like God is. God is past, present, future all at once. That means every verse is going to have three simultaneous applications. And yes, there's a past historical application, what it meant in its historical setting, Don't leave it there because it's not just a human book. Human books you have to leave there. No, the Bible is also able to tell you what you ought to do in your life, a present inspirational application. And also every verse is still going to have a future prophetic application showing something about Christ and his kingdom and his coming and how that's going to come about, and so all you've got, and you can't use one application to overthrow any of the others. So you got to keep it all in balance. So I think what had happened was, so if we take uh, Revelation 2 and 3, and we use that as a template for all of church history, starting with the church at Ephesus, and that was like the earliest age of the church, up to, uh, you know, 100 AD or so, something like that, and then you got I don't know, you got Smyrna and Pergamum and, and, and all. And finally you get down to Philadelphia and then Laodicea. So the Philadelphian age of the church, I will say, would be the one right before us. I'm going to say uh, from 1611 to 1881. That's when they came out with the revised version, the first new translation since the authorized version in 1611. So I'm going to say it was kind of, uh, you know, 1611, 1881, and then the generation after that. Boy, we've lost a lot. And, and I think that generation following the Philadelphian age Bible scholars ceased getting insight out of the scriptures because they neglected the authority of its words. 
One of the things that amazed people about the teaching of Jesus was what? He taught as someone who had authority. Now, what does that mean? We didn't teach like the scribes, because you know how the scholars teach, by quoting one another. And all the scholars try to teach by quoting all the skeptics and sifting through all the skeptics and then using their human reason to try and come to what that particular scholar with what he knows is what he thinks is the best conclusion. And you've got to rely upon him. So that's how the scribes teach. That's, and the Pharisees, same thing. They go back to their sages who instituted their legalisms to make sure that you follow along the same legalistic way. Jesus didn't teach that. said that he taught as one having authority. Now, you can only teach with authority if you have certainty. If you are not certain... You can't teach authoritatively. That gets us back to Proverbs 22, verse 20, and the certainty, having the certainty of the words of truth. Jesus taught with authority because compared to the scribes and Pharisees, he had certainty because he knew he had the certainty of the words of truth in the scriptures that he had received. So... That's what, that's what we lost. That's what we got to get back. That's what would return us and restore us to being Philadelphian age Christians in a Laodicean age. They ceased to have a faith-based view that every word was pure, precious, and preserved. So, back to Psalm 119. Let's pick it up where we left off, which I think is down about verse... Well, let's, the section starts in verse 25. I'll get you down quickly to where we left off last time. What we need to do is, is a close reading of the text and an explanation word by word. So, 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 so we, will, we will try and do that just to set the backstory in case you weren't here Two weeks ago, when we opened up this particular section, um, we've got a segment of eight verses, 25 to 32, speaking of regeneration, rejuvenation through the word. And this section divides evenly into two parts. First off, the psalmist talks about his handicap, verses 25 to 28. And then he talks about his conquest, verses 29 to 32. So we see David applying God's word to his life in four fundamental ways in the first four verses of this section. He applies God's word in conviction, in confession, in consecration, and in contrition. So, and all of that's in the outline on the handout that, that we gave you that you're able to pick up over there at the door. Uh, so verse 25, uh, the condition of conviction. Now, because of conviction, 
Then verse 26, we make confession. Correct contrition of heart is what is needed more than cleverness of head. And this is why the scribes never get it. And they can't teach with authority. And, and you know, and sometimes the Pharisees are so clueless. And they just don't have it because, because you, need, you don't need cleverness of head, which is all that they can come up with. And most of the time, the only thing they're giving you is the best that a lost man could do on a good day. What you really need is contrition of heart. So we've got, that means we've got to adjust our ways to God's word. So after the confession, in order to really come correct, then verse 27, God requires consecration. All of this we looked at last time. So, so apply God's word to your life in those four fundamental ways of conviction, confession, consecration. Then in the final analysis, contrition. We'll pick it up there now. It's where we left off last time. Verse 28. Verse 28. Somebody who is there at verse 28, stand up and, and in your good outside playground voice, read verse 28 for us. Okay, verse 28. My soul melteth. You know, when your soul melts, the drips usually come out of your eye sockets. So you might, you might see that as a metaphorical way of referring to, to weeping. Uh, Jesus wept at Bethany over the sin that had killed Lazarus. I mean, he knew what he was going to do. He knew he was the son of God. He already knew what he was going to do in terms of raising Lazarus from the dead. He wept anyway because of the grief that it had brought. I think he wept because he knew that Lazarus was the only one he was going to ask to come out of that grave. Mary wept at Bethany previously when she poured out her alabaster box on Jesus' feet. So let me just say this, and you know, maybe this is something you ought to get down. The word that will make you live cannot come from within yourself. I mean, the only word that will make you live cannot come from inside of you. It cannot come from within yourself. That's totally opposite to what we are taught today. Because what we are taught today is, oh, trust your heart, listen to your heart. You know, just go inside of you and you know, find out what's going on and, uh, and go, with, go with your heart on that. No, no, uh, no. So while we're taught to only look inside and listen to our heart, that is such folly. Verse 28, my soul melteth for heaviness. And now you see there's a colon. And another thing I want to do uh, one of these nights... Uh, you know, little by little, what I had to do is, is uh, because this is, this is part of the reason why uh, we are King James only, and particularly from a teaching standpoint. Um, uh, so, so, but part of, um, part of the, um, being able to prove that and show that, um, you know, I had to take a minute and bring out just some things about 
English grammar that you don't remember from grammar school. So when, you, when it says, my soul melteth for heaviness, and there, then there's a colon, what does that colon mean? That colon means that the clause, so sentences are made up of clauses, one or more clauses, either dependent or independent clauses. All you have to have for a sentence is a subject and a verb. Sometimes the subject is understood and not written. Uh, uh, most of the times when that shows up in the Bible, it's, it's the word you. I mean, if I, so look, if, if, I, if I say this one word, stop, that's a complete sentence. It is both a subject and a, and a verb, but the subject is not expressed. The subject is you. You stop. But all I have to say is stop, and it's a complete sentence, because the subject is understood. And so it's got to say it's a, a complete, okay, but you're okay here. So, so now after the colon is a clause, and the colon means what's after it is going to tell you why. It explains it. My soul melteth for heaviness. Well, what am I going to do about that? How can I counter that? What, you know, uh, so it's either going to tell me how or why. In this case, if it's not going to tell me why my soul is heavy, it's going to tell me how to relieve that heaviness. How do I do that? Strengthen thou me according unto thy word. So we need to treat the word of God causally, not casually. We treat it casually when we ought to treat it causally. The word of God should be the cause that produces an effect in your life. Because it is the word of God that will do the work. And verse 28 unveils both the cause and the cure for many cases of depression. Now, not all, but, but for many. I mean, I'm convinced that a lot of the maladies we have today, uh, sin puts on us and society has put on us and Satan puts on us because of so many years of not obeying Bible principles and going by the Bible and doing what God says. And just not doing things the right way. And, and it's just the consequences of generations of going on our own way and doing our own thing. It could all, all of that could be corrected causally uh, by what the Word of God says. But then there's also um, all the things that leach into our lives through the environment. And so, there is, so there's hormone issues. And you can't deny that. Uh, there's medication issues. There's, uh, you know, there may be other organic things or there are events, certainly. But uh, much of it can uh, be, if not cured, at least enabled to be handled by verse 28. So, so, all, the, so all the problems that you're going through, when you think I psychologically got a problem, it's either organic, or it's chemical, or it's physical, 
or it's spiritual, spiritual warfare. Now, spiritual is the easiest one to take care of and the least to be worried about. Because if you allow it to drive you to the word of God, and if it is spiritual warfare, if your every time 100% consistent response is to make it drive you to the Bible, well, then that, that demon will leave you alone because his goal is not to get you in the Bible. He'll go on to somebody else. So that one's easier to take care of. But organic, chemical, physical, okay. You know, it may be some of those things, natural. It may be even uh, genetic to some degree. We've all, you know, we've got all ingrained sin through our DNA as well as our, uh, so our genetics as well as our upbringing. And uh, yeah, that's just part of life. God gives us the Bible to enable us to walk through it. And Christ walks in us through it. And even if when there is suffering, that suffering draws me together into fellowship with him. So, uh, turn to Jeremiah chapter 17. The last half of this section, verses 29, 30, 31, and 32, talk about the psalmist's service once his suffering has been silenced. So now he prays a second time for restoration, for rule, for resolve, and a request. First, restoration of sanctification. Now, somebody who is there at verse 29, stand up and read in your outside playground voice, verse 29. Uh, Psalm 119, I'm sorry. I'm not, to, I'm not to Jeremiah 17 yet, but we will get there. But back at Psalm 119, just verse 29. Stereo. <laughs> now notice, watch, verse 29. Not remove me from... He doesn't say that. Notice the order of the words. He does not say remove me from the way of lying as if I got ensnared into it innocently. No, he says, remove from me the way of lying, because that's where it originates. It originates in me. I am the liar. (laughs) Remove from me the way of lying. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The other reference I wanted to look at, because it tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, for the Jew who is trying to survive the tribulation, it's either lie or keep God's law. And that's going to be the only choice. But, but we ought to be aware of the deep things of Satan even within our own soul because our, heart, our hearts are deceitful. Our heart is desperately wicked. Um, the whole life of sin, the, the life of the flesh, life in the natural man is always a way of lying. It is a way of life, a lifestyle of lying How do I know? Well, what are the most famous uh, movies, uh, uh, characters, uh, TV shows, 
Uh, you know, I don't have a lot of time uh, to do just recreational reading, uh, fiction type reading, but when I do, uh, I'll read something like John Le Carre. Anybody else a fan of spy, spy novels? John Le Carre. Now that was his pen name. But he was one of the few actual, uh, so he'd be like a CIA agent who retired and wrote novels. Uh, he, he, he worked both for MI6 and MI5 in British intelligence during the Cold War. And then he got out and he wrote novels about it. So it's very realistic. But you know, all of his novels center around the fact that all these British guys are liars. I mean, it's not, just, it's not just the enemy. It's our government. It's not just their spies. It's our spies. And our spies are moles. And our, and our spies are, are, you know, double spies. And, and uh, uh, you know, so it's not just them. It's us. And, and all of his novels kind of just, you know, okay, uh, 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 a show uh, is popular, uh, you know, a few years back, House. Anybody a fan of House? Because House was like the medical Sherlock Holmes, right? He had a drug addiction. He uh, solved things by deduction. And his premise was that the patient is always lying. <laughs> so you can't trust what the patient says. You sometimes can't even trust the presentation uh, symptoms. You got to go dig and find out and get, I mean, it's all based on the fact that at heart, we're all good liars. Now, just as a bonus, you ought to go home and hunt for the eight times that lying is mentioned here in Psalm 119. That's just a bonus assignment. Pilate, who had been lied to too many times while interrogating a prisoner under oath, asked Jesus what truth was. But he was so cynical, he then stepped out of the room instead of waiting for the answer. We need to want God to expose and to strengthen us on the inside to remove from us the way of lying. So David makes three resolutions in the next three verses. He says, I have, and, and you ought to just, you know, I think the first week we looked at this, we went through and had you identify the verbs, right? So, so next three verses, I have chosen, I have stuck, and I will run. Verse 30, I've chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I, how did I do that? Colon, here's how I laid thy judgments before me. So he records for us a decision that he made to be ruled by God's judgment and God's definition of truth. So he opens the book so he can lay it before him. I have, I've laid thy judgments before me. So he must have found them in a book that he opened. He found them in God's word. I mean, that's just like Daniel, who was able to dare the king's wrath 
instead of set aside God's word. You know, so all we can do is either say yes to the word or yes to the world. That's our choice. Now watch, verses 29 and 30, there are two ways. David did not see God's judgments as something imposed on him governmentally. He saw them as truth which was imparted to him graciously. So when he talks about God's judgments, he's not begrudgingly like, ah, I got to do what God says. It's like, no, God has graciously showed me and granted me his judgments because that will judge my way. That will show me which way to go. That will convince me about who to trust and what to do because he's ruled by truth. So he makes a resolve, which brings a result. Verse 31, I'm going to try and finish these last two verses tonight. Verse, 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 uh, verse 31. I've stuck unto thy testimonies. O Lord, put me not to shame. Now, that's not New Testament praying, but it has a definite doctrinal context for a tribulation saint. So verse 30, a decision to choose the truth is a crisis. A ruling a crisis, but verse 31, a decision to stick to that truth is a process, a resolution. Okay, so it's a crisis that has to result in a process. A decision is a crisis, but the t- determination to follow through on that decision is a process. Now, what you ought to do is run a rail, and I think I put a picture up uh, on the um, PowerPoints of my Bible where I have run a rail between the word stuck and the word cleaveth. So in verse 25, I think, is the word cleaveth. In verse 31 here is the word stuck. If you underline both of those words and then connect them with a line out in the margin, then what you have done is you've run a rail. And the reason I connect them like that is because they are both the same word, in the Hebrew that David wrote. My soul sticks to the dust, yet I am cleaving to your testimonies. And there's no contradiction in that because within us there is an undying body of sin. And yet within the believer is also an unkillable desire for grace. So, The choosing Christian is going to be the sticking Christian. And so stick to the word and you will not feel like you are stuck with the word. Since God's word forms the perfect bond, then we should not want to bring shame to the name. Now turn to Matthew 24 and now let me finish verse 32 in the uh, one minute, 30 seconds we got left. Uh, Verse 32, I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Now, he could walk. I mean, he talked in verse 1 of Psalm 119 about walking. But running shows enthusiasm. I will run in the way of thy commandments. Matthew 24, verse 15 says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. 
Then let him which be in Judea flee unto the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of the house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as one who was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So, Running, in the case of the tribulation saint, that'd be the future prophetic context of this verse, is running to escape Jerusalem at the appearance of the abomination of desolation. Because that shows you who the Antichrist is and that he is physically present there. Verse 32, I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Most people like to have an enlarged head, but if you get glued to the book, your final request will be, enlarge my heart. Broaden my affections. Make me love better. I want to love more. Why? Because your feet are always going to follow your heart. Say, but Alan, my heart isn't into doing the right thing. Well, that's because it's deceitful and wicked discipline it, disciple it, and then you can trust it to lead your feet. Have a dilated heart, and you will not have dilatory feet. Have a swelling heart, and you will not have sinning feet. Sin narrows us. Sin traps us. By nature, we get addicted to our own ways. That is a rut that turns into a grave. So our circle of affection and motivation and desire becomes circumscribed by self when what we really need to do is be focused on God's purpose for our eternity and what His Word says gets you there. So before we can get a high horizon, we need to get an enlarged heart. My time is up. I thank you for yours. Go ahead and stand. uh, Bump elbows with your neighbor. Let's have a word of prayer. You notice the key thought that we've listed for this section to finish it up. Key thought is faith delivers us from the confinement of a small, self-centered heart. And Father, I thank you tonight that we could uh, finish up this section of Psalm 119. I thank you that it really shows us the way of deliverance, which is running in the way of your commands. It is running in the way of the Word of God. It is, you allow, it is us allowing the Word of God to do the work in our life. So many things we can't do on our own willpower, and we tend to give up because of that when we have not even tried We haven't even tried just the faith that activates your grace. So that grace becomes operative through your word. And because we got the certainty of the words of truth, it gives us confidence to step out and doing the right thing and following you and come hell or high water, being able to just go with you through it all. Father, we thank you that you are our Father. We thank you that Jesus is our Redeemer, but also our elder brother. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is inside of us to speak to us and guide us, empower us, anoint us. God, be with us this week. 
in those very things. We ask it in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.